0: Welcome to Living in the Matrix. I'm Jonathan, and I'm left of center.
1: And I'm Rich, and I tend to lean a little bit more to the right. But the bottom line is, is together we try to look for
0: the balance of what it means to be human in today's world. Um, So hey, everybody, welcome to Living in the Matrix. I'm Jonathan. This is my co-host, Rich. Say hello, Rich. Hey, everybody. Nice to see you. Yes, and today on Living in the Matrix, we have a very special guest, and this is going to be a really fun episode because Andrew Ronich has written a book that uh, if you were listening to David Artman's episode, we're going to go there again because I personally believe this is an important topic because it is something that has ruled the church for a long time and scared the shit out of it. And so what Andrew's really done is really created a very good defense against the idea that hell just needs to go away. And so I want to introduce Andrew Ronich. And did I say that right? Is it Haronich or Ronich? Ronich?
2: Uh, I, I've been called everything in between. So what do you go easy, by? Though? Yeah, the easy, uh, I go by whatever you say, but how it's pronounced would be Ha, your friend Ron and an itch. So itch. Haronich. Oh, okay.
1: Cool. Yeah, very good. Haronich. Very good.
2: So, uh,
0: welcome. And uh, how did you get to this place? Where does that story begin? Because we—that is the journey. I think a lot of people are on of trying to make sense of their own faith.
2: Where did it begin for you? Yeah, evangelical is always like a testimony story, right? I'm all I'm all for a testimony story. So uh, when people, when they find out that I go to Princeton Theological Seminary, a lot of times they just say, oh, there's another crazy liberal, you know, but it's funny. I was talking to a professor at Liberty yesterday, and they can all attest that I was well on my way there while at Liberty. In fact, I arrived there while at Liberty University, believe it or not. Jerry Falwell Sr. is probably rolling over in his grave.
1: <laughs> um,
2: but it all started for me when I purchased a book by Bart Ehrman. I didn't know who he was at the time, but it was called Heaven and Hell. And I thought, you know, this looks interesting. So I started reading it. And that's my first time being introduced to a critical scholarship, really, at that level, and uh, introduced to a lot of things, especially different concepts of hell. And I read it, I was kind of stunned. I was like, oh my gosh, there's other ways of viewing hell. And of course, he was reporting the conditional mortality or annihilationist viewpoint. And then um, later on, I started having questions, particularly about the um, soteriological problem of evil. So the unevangelized in particular, Um, Mm -hmm. I became a Calvinist very early on in college, but I was still very concerned about the unevangelized. I thought, what on earth happens to them? And uh, don't you know that John MacArthur has decided that these people want nothing to do with God? Or I kid you not, I remember one Calvinist said that God no more intended that they should hear the gospel than that grass should grow in icy Siberia. Wow. And that quote stayed with me. I couldn't believe it. So the soteriological problem of evil was causing a lot of problems existentially for me. The idea that God just so hated these people, he didn't bring the gospel to them. And I just didn't find that compelling. And then I came across this book one day at the library called The Inescapable Love of God. I'm surprised the Jerry Fowler library even has it. And I read it. it was by a guy named Tom Talbot, and mm-hmm. it was a phenomenal book. I was blown away. And so I tell people before I ever became a convinced universalist, I became a praying one. It just seems so beautiful of a vision. So I just started praying, like, I, I hope this is real. I don't know for sure. I really hope that this is real. So as time went on, I started looking at more and more biblical arguments. Uh, Robin Parry's book, of course, was very instrumental, The Evangelical Universalist. And as time went on, I became more and more compelled towards the universalist perspective. But I did notice that there were some gaps in the literature along the way. For, quick
0: For our yeah. listeners, how do you give them a sense of what you mean by universalist so our listeners will understand.
2: Sure. So it's a term that I feel I can comfortably use with you guys, but Outside of people who know this topic, it's very hard to use that word. Yeah, why do I care? Yeah, Yeah. they automatically assume, oh, you're just one of those crazy pluralists, are pluralist. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and so I don't like that word. I like reconciliationist or restorationist mm-hmm. when I'm talking with those folks. I love right? those words too, yes. Exactly. Who doesn't like the idea of restoration, right? Um, so universalism, as Richard Bachman defined it, is simply the view that eventually all persons will be saved, right? That's what it is. At the end of the day, there's different ways. So what you're saying is everybody's
0: going to end up in what we kind of conceptually think of as heaven.
2: Wherever we uh, end
0: up, we're all going to be together.
2: uh, Whether it's, um, you believe, new heavens and new earth or just heaven, everybody will be saved to the full extent. Yeah, wherever we end up. Yeah, we're all going to be together. Right. Right. We'll all live happily ever after. (laughs) Why was that irrelevant to you as a kid? Why was that relevant or irrelevant? Why
0: was it relevant? Because I know I've oh, heard yeah. a little bit of your story. You have seven brothers and sisters, or you're the seventh.
2: I, I'm one of seven, yeah. One of seven. I'm impressed. Yeah, I'm very impressed. Yeah. Well, so growing up, I grew up in a fire and brimstone church, right? Uh, yes, yes. I grew up in uh, Tim LaHaye predispensational church, and it was all about the wrath of Lamb. You know, don't you guys know that he came once as a Lamb, but he's coming back again as a Lion, hallelujah. It's the ultimate Clark Kent. Um. except we don't like this version of Superman. So I remember being in church for many services where the pastor would get really impassioned. You know, this is a Southern Baptist preacher. Come on. Can mm-hmm. I get a witness? Jesus will hold a gun in that church. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> yes, right. no, he will. He's got a, He's got a strap of bullets and he's got a 50 caliber. That's,
2: yeah.
1: It's, I've it's seen, Jesus I've and in John Wayne. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. Right.
2: So. So I remember uh, one moment for me in particular was my sister started really questioning the traditional doctrine of hell uh, after parents once, uh, pastors once in one, he just went on a rant about what's going to happen to hell. And it's when she expressed frustration for me, that was one of the early moments in life where I started questioning. It. I said, you know, this does seem kind of vindictive, you know, this view of hell. Another was when I was in Sunday school class and I was reading, we were going through the book of Revelation and mm-hmm. the teacher came to uh, the final chapters in which there was uh, right, there's the judgment. And there's a picture of the New Jerusalem that says, his gates are always open and the kings of the earth and nations shall bring their glory in. And I remember as a little kid, um, I was just that guy in the class. And I said, wait a minute, but the only people outside of the city at this point are those in the lake. So do they get another chance? And my teacher <laughs> was kind of like moving on. So. Oh, he didn't even answer it. It was, it was a shit. Yeah. She didn't even answer.
0: Sh- yeah. That's, that's
2: awesome. Sh-
0: that's awesome. So where did that draw? I mean, you're, were you afraid of hell growing up?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't so much think of hell I was, as a place of... And yeah. I know a
0: lot of people. Most of the kids that I went to church with growing up, we were all afraid of
2: hell. It was like oh, the yeah. trump card. No, yeah, it was, it was one of those things that you wanted to love Jesus, right? So it's almost like anything that you didn't like about the biblical God, that wasn't Jesus. That was God the Father, right? So Jesus doesn't like hell, but God the Father loves it. And uh, for me, it just meant that I couldn't trust God the Father as much as I could trust Jesus. Right? Jesus was the nice guy. God the Father was the mean guy who created hell. And um, as a kid, it was just it was just terrifying, right? This idea that I remember my early testimony, my first testimony of how I came to the Lord was because I didn't want to go to hell. Right? It was that simple. Um, it was just it was just plain obvious. I this place sounds horrible. I don't want to go there. Later on, I came to understand that's called coercion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not a free-willed relationship with God. That's coercion. I mean, can't imagine a more extreme form of coercion. This is maximal punishment, right? I, it, this is the most extreme form of coercion. And that happened to me as a child. I thought that was child mm-hmm. abuse. That it was oh, literal yeah. fire was what we were taught. So you're literally going to be burned. Yes. yes. We, had an, we had an evangelist came and to our church and he gave a testimony about soldiers who burned in uh, destroyed helicopter and he said that's going to be you in hell if you don't repent. Forever.
1: Yeah. <laughs> not just one time exactly
2: but for all eternity and i, I remember I, sleeping I and i hated that did you ever hold your hand over fire
0: and see how I, close I, you yes get it yeah. yes it's like you test yourself and go "Holy these shit that would like you can't even visually imagine it and you're only nine years old like it's it's not even it's so whacked it's unreal and i think i grew up in that world so i grew up in a in a uh conservative Baptist and then a non-denominational evangelical that, mm. that essentially was Baptist. So we had that thread going through our childhood. And I look back now and realize the concept of hell terrifies kids. Mm. Mm. I mean, it absolutely terrifies kids. And we're not talking about hundreds or thousands or 10,000s or millions we're talking about tens of millions of kids are terrified by hell. That's the problem that I have with it is this is what it does. It puts kids into a state of arrested development. And I, it think also
2: that- makes the yeah. kid want to want to die before they reach the age of accountability. Yes. Right. Yes.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
2: Yeah. It, it, Cause, cause or, you're afraid.
0: Of- like I had a conversation with a very good pastor friend of mine and he said, Jonathan, I am afraid every night for my kids. To go to hell he couldn't get over it it was just paralyzing
1: speaking of which what do you think about what do you think john thinks about his son abraham there um andrew um i don't know <laughs> a- a- abraham's gone off the deep end a little bit but i i think he's hilarious um you, you, here's what i'd like to interject with this i i love john piper as well i went to desiring god i saw him in bethlehem baptist we would go there every year for the conference and we would see uh, the supremacy of Christ in a postmodern world with David Wells. Uh, and there was Mark Driscoll up there. We saw him with MacArthur talking about endurance. And there's even Christ and sexuality, right? And I'm, you know, one of the things that I'm, I was trying to figure out how would come up with a reasonable, practical part of this conversation is where do we dive in? where do we try to come up with ways cuz you we just um, went through the problem of all this pain and suffering and the trauma that's been instilled on all these people who think they're going to go to hell and you think okay that has an impact on things right mm-hmm. um you know in in your um in your chat with you know David we talked about you know you can be a reformed person you could be arminian you could be a molinist you could be a open theist right we can talk about a lot of different ways of looking at how universalism helps but i guess what i'm trying to figure out is where can it have the biggest impact? So going into, for instance, even the idea of, um, uh, even we talk about, John Piper wrote an article on Athanasius, right? Athanasius Contramundum. And here's a guy who supposedly might even be a universalist because of this deified kind of, how we can become deified. This guy was an absolute bulldog for, um, you know, homoousios, right? Like co-substantiality with the Father, right? One iota, that one thing that everybody wonders, what is one iota, what you mean? It's homoousios. What I'm getting at theologically, Jonathan, is here is you you have all these people with making these massive arguments, and in this case with Athanasius, he destroyed Arius, right? And said, hey, here's the Council of Nicaea. Jesus is fully human and fully divine. He's co-substantial with the Father what the hell difference does it make, right? And then he gets exiled over and over again, even though, you know, Constant, you know, Constantine and his sons were battling. I, I'm trying to get my handle on, as a practical framework, where would you think we could go as a, as a group, as a mind think? How do we start to spread this and how do we make universalism practical? Because it seems to me... Um, when you look at C.S. Lewis's version of, do you go with the Bible or do you go with the character of God? You err on the character of God, right? We go back to David's argument of God as a loving father. There's so many good attributes that follow from that, right? And the idea, how incoherent is Greg Boyd would say, of the idea of God creating and then willing his children to sin against them to then store up wrath against them is just ridiculous, right? So, Maybe we're diving too quickly into the pragmatic, but how, when you've gone through this and read all the different books and tried to fill the gaps in there, and by the way, I, I don't have I your us Go there; it's fifty bucks, but um, <laughs> you can get a discount. But I want to read it very dearly. Um, help us where you would love to dive in and start making a difference in how we can help.
2: That's kind of what I wanted
1: to want to know.
2: No, yeah. um, It's like I was talking with a friend today. A lot of this has to do with how we frame the discussion, right? And so what I want people to get uh, to know better is that God is Christ-like and in him is no one Christ-likeness. When God shines, he shines Jesus. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There was never a time when he wasn't like Jesus, but we didn't always know this, right? That's something I struggled with for years, okay? I just didn't believe there was a chance that God was like Jesus, right? Um The only time I started to really take it seriously Was after I listened to a guy named Brian Zond Asked me Brian mm-hmm. Zond read his books And that's when I said, you know what there, there might be a chance that God is like Jesus Then I read Greg Boyd And Carl Barth was a huge influence Randall Rouser And then I remember I started believing it I said, you know what, there's a reason why we say WWJD, what would Jesus do? Mm-hmm. Because if we ask WWBD, what would the Bible do? Well, you know I mean, it depends, doesn't it? it depends right. yeah. uh, do we kill prisoners of war? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I understand that God is like Jesus at the end of the day, right? And I understand that God is a perfect being is another way of putting it. So this is what I asked the Calvinist brother today. I said, all right, let's say you have a creator named Tom. And Tom creates this world full of creatures, right? And Tom loves all of his creatures, right, uh, onto salvation, all of them uh whereas bob creates a world full of creatures same amount of creatures but he loves only half of those creatures onto salvation which of those between tom and bob would you say more exemplifies the great making property of love and we'd have to say the first tom right Yes. yes the first and if god is that being that which none greater can be conceived i can imagine or conceive of a greater being than bob namely tom so Bob can't be God, so long as we're defining God as that being that which none greater can be conceived. End of story, right there, right? So there goes particularistic Calvinism. Right? right. So, so I think it's helpful to frame it. I remember I had this conversation with someone about seeing God as Christ-like. It changed his life in the conversation. I remember he told me to this day that it was impactful. So that's what we're dealing with, right? Is we're trying to show people that God is like Jesus. And we're trying to convince them that that's true, right? That's good news to know that God is like Jesus. We also want to convince them that God is a perfect being. And so when others, they try to convince us that there is some degree of darkness in God, we say God is light in whom there is no darkness whatsoever, right?
1: Now, going down that path, though, you'll see you'll have a lot of um, ECT, eternal conscious torment um, proponents who will say there's lots of passages in the Bible where Jesus is pretty pissed off and he has a lot of scathing, Condemnations, and of course, we've gone through some of the nuances of Gehenna and what that framework look, looks like in context, right? And things like that. But let's say they naturally went down that path and said, "Wait a minute! It seems to me that there are some pretty condemning passages from Jesus." You know, um, tell me a little bit about how you would say that, even though God is Christ-like, right? When you when you see God, look at l- realize that's Christ, and so that softens that negative Old Testament view, right? And the God of the genocide of <laughs> killing all the, all the Canaanites. But um, what would you do say um, to the, those folks who would say Jesus is pretty condemning in many ways?
2: Sure. So I'd say there is a world of difference between an intrahistorical temporary punishment and an unremitting punishment. Yeah. Right. And so I can say, while I might not fully understand how this temporary punishment plays into the grand schemes of things for this individual and how it'll be good for them on the whole, I know that there's a guarantee that for this individual, their life will be a great good to them on the whole in the end. But on something like eternal torment, there is no such guarantee, right? The nature of ECT makes it such that that person would be better for them if they had never existed to begin with, right? Yes. Well, their life yes. will not be a great good to them on the whole. That's it right there, right? That's it. Um, that's the easy way of saying it. I could go into, like, um, if you want to be really serious, some people say that some of the more terrifying language in Matthew um, that they don't think it goes back to the historical Jesus. I mean, people like even like NT right will debate about this because it's not in Q, it's not in Mark, it's not multiply attested, right? But I tend to stay away from that because most people who I engage with are very conservative evangelicals, and I just don't find that to be the most helpful approach when engaging with them, to be honest.
1: Well, you know what's also interesting at the end of the day about universalists, when you speak about, you know, NT, right? I I had to read John Piper's book on the new perspective of Paul, right? Which was terrible. Oh my gosh, what's going on here? Right. And he was laughing like, you know, this, you know, this gas of righteousness in a courtroom. Right. And and so each of them would go back and forth. Do you think that if you go down the path and ultimately people agree that Jesus, um, even though there will be pain and suffering and this type of, of pruning um, through perhaps eons of hell, but ultimately reconciled, that all these other kinds of Philosophical or theological constraints will start to fa- fade by the wayside, like eschatology, like soteriology, like um, whether or not you know Jesus is fully God and fully man and co-substantial. Do you think some of those things will lose um, their teeth because we have a lot of time and effort and money and and heart spent on all these types of arguments, including, of course, you know whether God fully knew or had middle knowledge like in Molinism, right? I mean, all these things seem to actually take a back step when you come to that ultimate understanding of how we're ultimately going to be in the loving arms of the Lord.
2: Yeah. I think it causes less divisiveness if both of us agree that, Hey, in the end, all will be saved. Right. Because then we understand uh, we are both brothers in Christ who are attempting to discern the will of God. You in your way, me and his, (laughs) that's just a bad joke. Um, (laughs) But, but that's what I that's what I say to people all the time is that with my belief that eventually all we'll will be saved, I understand that God loves them just as much as he loves me. And then I ought to demonstrate that love towards them. So I ought to see them in the best light possible. Yes. So yes. if I'm a Calvinist and they're a Molinist, I say, you know, brother, we may have disagreements, but God loves you and I do too. Right. Uh, so that's my approach to many things. That's why in my book, I say you can be a Calvinist, Molinist, Arminian, open theist, right? Right the effects of those things on your spiritual life. That's what I really care about. But if if it leads you to hate the unevangelized, right, as I've seen with certain Calvinists, I have a problem with that, right? If it leads you instead to, when you're in the midst of suffering, you say, God has a plan for me. There's There's a reason behind this. I'm going to trust him here. Now, even if it might baffle someone like me, if it's helping you, like it does with some people, I say, you know what, brother? I don't share that same perspective, but I see that it's making you bold for Christ, right? I see what it's doing in your life. And, you know, I just want to encourage you in that. So I think that universalism does, it opens people's minds to start asking other questions like I did, right? So it gives you the ability to ask questions. It sees that you're on equal footing with others. So I think that um, if you look at the history, for example, of how people who came to universalism thought about slavery, like Gregory of Nyssa, right? Or how they thought about racism, how they thought about other tribes. It's a game changer. And so like one individual, they asked me, you know, why bother writing this book? It said, well, one of them is for political ramifications. Universalism might change your view of the penal system, right? For example, it might change your view of, well, what what do we do with, um, how do we punish children? We look at how we punish children and say, should that affect, you know, how we see God punishing people in the long run? And then we start yes. reconceiving a punishment altogether. Like, you know, maybe it's not effective to just take a whip and hit a child in a schoolroom, right? Maybe there's something going on in that child's life that we just don't really understand. Oh, what's that? You're abused at the home. So me hitting you again here might not be a really good choice, right? So yes, universalism is going to affect everything in your life. But it's a beautiful thing when it does, right? Because you will come to see that the world is suffused with the love of God and you want to reflect that love back on other people.
1: That's amazing. And Jonathan, I'd love for you to expand on this because you've done a lot more work in this, but we've been exploring. One of the things that started this conversation about our podcast, of course, is we're in this matrix, you know, it's postmodern world, God knows what's up and what's down. And if, if what we're doing is real, and what kind of makes sense? Are we trapped in a, in a bloody, you know, big battery making factory? And we think we're living in some kind of real world. And um, what we started realizing is a lot of um, what we've been doing is actually people coming to a journey of breaking out of mm-hmm. the status quo. And actually finding ways to heal themselves and others, either physically, spiritually, mentally, through meditation, through prayer, through um, other types of uh, processes, through good diet and health. And a lot of our guests have done this. But one of the things that is almost overarched this is this idea of new knowledge in, in, in physics, actually, called the quantum field, right? And the unified field. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, but basically it comes down to the level that everything is pure consciousness, And so what it actually means is you and I are the same. We are this cosmic, you know, constructs ontologically, and we really aren't different. In the eyes of God and a universalist God, we are all the same. We are all ultimately going to be reconciled to our loving father. But Jonathan, did you want to spin on that as well and ask, you know, I mean, because this seems to be, it seems to me that universalism could reach a much larger audience that isn't necessarily theistic in general because of the nature of where these two fields converge.
0: What do you think basically what he's talking about is uh science is now realizing past quarks which is the the irreducible there's about what about 50 so if you take science and reduce it to negative positive down at the subatomic level you get to quarks and past quarks they're now realizing you can they can disappear and actually create out of nothing and so there's this space at the very below that is invisible that they call the unified field. It's where things are not at odds. And the first layer, which is what we experience, is there's good and evil. That's the first division. So it's just everything splits up and up and up and up and up. And I think the unified field is what Jesus was calling the kingdom of God. Yes. And that he, when he talks about the kingdom, he's talking about this space because in the unified field, there is only grace. There's no division. We're all unified. And I think Jesus understood it because what the unified field is, is pure energy. And at a subatomic level, pure energy is not disconnected. And that's the concept that we've been exploring for a little while, is this space that Jesus was talking about where he could, you could actually experience the kingdom of God here and now, energetically. And you did that by taking a step of faith. What is faith? Faith is the first step of courage, and courage is the beginning of positive action energetically. It's a level called 200, and then you move up through hope and then logic. Logic is theology, how you construct your image, and then you get to love. And love is when you connect the heart. You connect the head and the heart together to create convergence, and that's when you can see the unified field. And that's what Jesus was talking. And that's the kingdom of God. It's this space that's here and now that we can actually experience. And I think universalism is the only story that is consistent to opening that door. Everybody, because there can't be an exception. Otherwise, God is not perfect love. It it, it reminds me me of God cannot be perfect love. And I think that's going back to what you were saying is, what really needs to be redeemed here is the image of God, not just our experience of God, because our image of God, when he wants to put us into hell, is not a good one. It's not representative of love. And I think that's the tragedy, is it's time for us to restore that image of God with this story of, of what David calls grace saves all, and you have... you. you you've constructed this argument that is accessible again. And that's what I love about it is you are reducing it to it's parts. This has, it, it is about love. So mm. do you see the unified field within your studies at Princeton? Have they talked about, it? have those physics and theology come together?
2: Uh, quantum entanglement is a big yeah. conversation. Yeah. Okay. At, um, Princeton. That is and, also, and also, um, Carl Barth, he has a certain he's language that sounds almost like quantum mm-hmm. physics. So um, one view that Carl Barth holds that is kind of similar to what you just propounded was that the idea that God has already reconciled to us, but we're not ourselves yet reconciled to God. Right. Yes. So yes. It, it's that, the idea. That of,
0: is salvation. Yes.
2: Yes. So it's the idea of like the Greeks. When the Greeks won the battle, I think it was at Marathon, when they won the battle, they still had to send the messenger home. So the people are still living in fear, not knowing that the battle has already been won. And so the people don't yet get to live in the life that's been won due to the victory without embracing the message of the victory, right? But what if the messenger comes to the town and people still continue to live in fear, not knowing that the victory has come already, right? That's what we're doing as universal. And people say, why bother evangelize? I say, because we are aiding God in the reconciliation of all things. We're bringing that message to all things so people can live in light of the victory that Christ has won right? So gospel yes. is good news, right? It's the good news in context in Roman era. It came from the battle. We are going to yeah, yeah. yep. that good yep. news. Yep. Yeah,
0: yeah. it has to be good news. It can't be almost good news. Philippides,
1: well, like, like, because he ended up dying um, after he ran, but at <laughs> yeah. least, you know, he probably went up and you know he's been glorified for a long time right now. So he's, he's, in, he's in the lights, right? So he's got that going for him. You know, going back to that um, why bother evangelizing? And of course the Calvinist yeah. is offered the same argument. Why bother? If 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 it's if God has already chosen double reprobation or double salvation, right? Double, you know, double predestination, but I think it's called double predestination, but are we actually trying to mitigate or assuage the length of time somebody might end up suffering? So you do spread that gospel? I mean, because because we still don't know, right? When we when we bring this news, some people come to this salvation and what does that look like? I mean, do we even want to go into the details of what that might be? Or we just kind of leave that up to God's grace, you know, and understand that if we've got the basics covered, then the rest is going to take care of itself, kind of? Is that where we are?
2: So it's interesting that you say this, because this is one of the questions, right, that people always present like as a trump card. Uh Aha, why evangelize? It's funny when it comes from a Calvinist, as you just pointed out, when they should know that they face this exact same quandary. It is exactly the same. I don't think that the universalist actually has a problem here for multiple reasons I give in my book in the epilogue. So for one thing, like you already pointed out, uh, in a sense, we are still saving people from hell when we evangelize. I don't want anyone to go there. It's going to be horrible, right? So we're helping to mitigate that. The other thing is that we're helping people to fulfill the two greatest commandments, to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as their self. I think people can better fulfill the two commandments with the gospel message or in light of it. So we're helping people to fulfill those that greatest commandment. Uh, there are so many reasons why evangelize. Another one is, it's like, um, imagine if there's this society, right? There um, in East Asia, tribal society with impure drinking water that they don't die because of it, but they get really bad diarrhea. And you had lavish resources where you could provide for their needs, but you said, "Well, it's not fatal, so why bother send them aid?" You sound like a despicable human that's being. A beautiful right? example, yeah. And, and, and that's exactly what we're facing on this. Why bother go and tell? Right? That's not even a question. If you really love Jesus, if you really love the gospel, you can't help but tell other people about it. So that'd be about why not join God in the reconciliation of all things? <laughs> when someone asks that to me, I'm a little, I'm like, um, have you do you know Jesus? Right? Do you love him? Do you love the gospel? So I find it honestly to be a, a very weird question. <laughs>
1: That that's Wait, a, that's, that's the a terrible rhetorical question. When did you start beating your wife? Right? When, when, oh, <laughs> so you don't want to start, you know, working in the ultimate reconciliation. Okay, that that's good.
2: <laughs> I knew where you that, stand. And if we're ultimately made for a relationship with God, if that's the best thing for a person to be properly related to God, and that the best, the most conducive way is to be related to God through Jesus Christ, then so you don't want that for other persons. Right, you think, oh, that's great for me, but Jeff over there, ah, it's just too much effort. <laughs> well, yeah, we don't want the people we don't like in heaven. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's what it really comes down to. And we don't, you know, we talked about this with David is perfect reconciliation or universalism means Hitler, who's sort of the standard for worst, is in heaven. How do we reconcile that? Mm. And my argument is once Hitler becomes aware, he's gonna be the one crying the most of how like love would redeem him. It wouldn't be he would that's the hard part is hell is the corner where the key is locked from the inside. And time, God, can create the space for you to just finally give up and wake up. So it's we gotta redeem the image of God for people because I think ultimately they can no longer they can only get to, in personal development, as big as their God is. And if their God doesn't like everybody that we don't like, it's a pretty small God. Hmm. It's you like,
2: uh, oh, it's a great point. It's like I was talking to a friend today about what sin is, right? What, what what constitutes sin? I think that what's involved in sin is offending the intrinsic worth of God and one's neighbor. So this is really strange on ACT, right? Because what goes on here is this. All right, to sin is to offend the intrinsic worth of God and neighbor. So what's God's punishment for that? Um, Johnny boy, you're going to continue on forever offending the intrinsic worth of God and neighbor. So it, it's almost like it's like someone commits a murder and the judge says your punishment shall be to continue murdering people. If God really hates sin, if he really hates it, that you're offending the intrinsic worth of God and neighbor. Why do He want people to continue doing that and forego them to stop doing that? Right. It's especially like if you hold a view like Calvinism, where he can turn wolves into sheep most freely and he doesn't do that. Then I start to worry about, does God really hate sin, or is it just his pet you know, that he keeps around for his purposes? I told my friend, I believe in the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. I think that's exactly what it is. I think, as a universalist, I think, that on my view, that God hates sin more than on the ECT view. Because on the ECT view, he acts to ensure that sin remains forever in his cosmos. On my view, he gets rid of that sucker. Right?
1: Yeah, No, that, that's, that's yeah, the whole point, living, that, God, that evil lives, lives in perpetuity. You know, mm-hmm. all the heavens creatures are celebrating and um, evil continues in in, in in eternity. And of course, and I think an Aquinas most despicable idea was I think that the people in heaven could actually see the people suffering in hell, if I'm not mistaken. One of his views. It was just that's just that's that's anathema. You know, that makes no sense at all. Um, and I think also what, what's, what I love about your angle, and I think this is where David loved your angle as well, is you tend to be a little less acerbic a little less abrasive than you know some of our other um eastern friends you know who <laughs> like to just go on a on a tirade and very eloquently say things but i'd I like it needs to be a big tent right it needs to be open This the whole nature of it shouldn't come with scathing words and mocking you know i think a lot of people it should come in a way that let's open this up let's dive in let's work on reconciling this out together right in the name of you know, the grace of God, you know, I, I, and I think that's what's, I think maybe that's why you've gotten so much. I mean, Bart, uh, I mean, you should have gotten a review from Bart Ehrman, even though he's, I think he's agnostic. <laughs> he liked the book. He did like the book. <laughs> that's awesome. Are You Are you guys are amicable then, right? I, that's what I think yeah, I heard you yeah, say. Yeah. That's awesome. But I mean, yeah, you've got a litany of amazing um, reviews, uh, including a guy who actually believes in hell and says, you know what, this has made me somewhat hopeful, you know, so it's yeah. great.
2: Okay. I want to say one thing on that, because that's so important what you just said. It's so important that I put it in the introduction to my book. So you need to get the electronic copy um, because it's very true. I'll see universalists say when somebody makes an argument against universalism, they'll say, oh, you just misunderstand so-and-so. Well, help them to understand. Don't just gaslight. Help them to understand. Show them where they went wrong, right? Because the reason why I love universalism is because I love people. In case you can't tell, I'm a people person, right? If I didn't love people, universalism would sound terrible. <laughs> lots and lots of people in one place. Well, spread out over one place, right? But it's because I love people that I love universalism. And I need to ask other universalists that. Do you actually love people? Do you love universalism? Or do you just like to be in, in that small community that cog- of the cognoscenti, right? Oh, I'm in the know, and all these other people are wrong, right? I think we need to stay away from arguments like that. I need to we say, come let us reason together, right? It's because... We love persons that we should love universalism.
0: Andrew, let me ask you a question. So you went to Liberty, which is the (laughs) bastion of conservatism from an educational standpoint. You know, you're right next to Wheaton, you know, now. And it's like, (laughs) then you went to Princeton, which is sort of the polar opposite of that. The question I have is, what's the vibe at your age around theology? Because this is sort of a capstone of theology. But what's what's the general sense across that? from your generation, because I'm probably about 20 years older than you. What's it like now in terms of, do people care about God? Do people
2: care about hell anymore? I, I think that's a great question. So it depends what circles they run in, right? So for many, it's, it's funny. I tell people that I'm too liberal for the conservatives and too conservative for the liberals. If I was in the Civil War, I'd have blue pants and a gray shirt. You have, you're with both sides. <laughs> Love is with both sides. That's there right. Is yeah. That's right. I like to stand on opposite side of the rivers and not have someone pull me onto either side. But what um, that allows you to do is you
0: get to critique both sides.
2: I do, yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Love now, gets to do that. <laughs> exactly. So what I've, what I've sometimes received from certain liberals is the idea that my view of the afterlife is desperately naive. Don't I know that it's been disproven time and time again? Um, so these would be people that you would see in the Jesus seminar, for example, like John Shelby Spong. They say, there is no afterlife. So they sometimes think of me as a raving conservative, right? Uh, whereas the conservatives, it depends on which conservative you're talking to, of course, right? Some conservatives. Um, here's an interesting question. Do I believe in hell? right? That will often come up. Andrew, do you even believe in hell? Now, I have to be careful how I answer that because hell can mean a power, place, or punishment to people. So I have to say, what do you mean by hell? For a Catholic, hell simply means eternal punishment. That's how the catechism defines it. So if that's what you mean, if if you conflate hell with the punishment, I'm fine with saying I don't believe in it because, hey, the word's not in the Bible anyway, right? There are four different Greek words that's just pasted over by an English or uh, German word like, I don't care, you know, like, okay, I don't believe in hell then, if you think of it in terms of that. Now, what about in terms of a power? Like, I'm going to hopefully debate a guy in the premier Unbelievable podcast, his name is uh, Joshua Butler Ryan, and he believes that hell is a power, that God wants to get the hell out of earth, Right. And so it's this power that's trying to rip apart heaven and earth. And that's what he means by hell. I say, you know, I'm down for that. Okay. I'm down for that. If you mean hell as a place, like the God's eschatological prison for the resurrected dam, I could say, Hey, I believe in that too. I believe in hell. So the only one I don't believe in was when hell was defined strictly as the punishment, as eternal uh, punishment, right? That's the only one. So I'm very careful with who I'm talking to. So when a conservative wants to just say, you know, do you even believe in hell? I like to give this analogy. Imagine that. I'm a, um, I'm a geocentricist, and my friend is a heliocentricist, and we're debating about the Earth, right, and its placement. And, of course, um, lis- listeners should know that a geocentricist believes that the Earth is at the center of the solar so system, and a heliocentricist yeah. believes that the sun is, right? So you can kind of see where I'm going. So we're debating, debating, and then at some point, I just throw up my arms and say, do you even believe in the Earth? they might say, of course I do. I just <laughs> think that it has a different place within the system than you do, my dear brother. And that's yeah. exactly what I might say to someone. Of course, I believe in hell. I just think that it holds a different place within the system than you do.
1: And a different
0: purpose. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because love can only be redemptive.
2: Mm. It,
0: it, it That's the concept that we're understanding is, is that at a unified field, there is no destruction. There is It's all unified. It's all perfectly put together, but it's good and... The context is there's no split between the two poles. They're just unified. And that's what I think is hard for people to grasp is I don't want Hitler in my heaven. Mm. You know, that's sort of the antithesis. That's the pole argument. And uh, I think I'm probably way over the line, but I'm ignoring that I've had six affairs and things like that. So, you know, it's like people construct ideas of why they should be in, but don't hold the other people accountable to that same standard. And that becomes the, the rub. Is we create our own hell yeah. in doing that? But is the, the nature
1: of heaven need to be redefined then? Because I think, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> we're going to be in this place of no more tears, no, you know, there's no more sorrow. We're going to be yeah. in a loving presence of perhaps loved ones. We're hoping that we can recognize our loved ones and we can have communion with them again. But at the same time, I don't think we're going to have a feeling of jealousy, right? Or you know,
0: you know, all these other kinds of constructs, right? Heaven I is the fullest potential of love. If you have a scale of one to a hundred heavens at the 100 and hell is at the zero. But the problem is, is that it never completely goes away. Love never goes away. So hell is impossible. Cause even if you keep splitting it in half, it never is completely split in half. It's always there. It's the present. Hell is, doesn't exist, but it does in our minds if we think it does. And that becomes the mental health construct that millions of people have adopted. And it, kills people. I used to say the sinner's prayer every day for a year when I was like 13. I was so afraid. And I think that's what ultimately we, we, in those debates, we forget that there's also a theology happens inside of the body. It doesn't happen just out here. It happens. We think about it. We feel it. And those theological constructs have an outcome. And I don't see Jesus defending hell. I see him defending love and grace. And th- that's why he says, love became the defining rod for me. If it doesn't pass the love test, it's bullshit.
2: <laughs> I'm reminded of like the Luke and parables where I was sitting down with an individual. I said, let's walk through some of these. So there is a, a, a shepherd and he mm-hmm. loses one sheep. He's got 99. Pretty good. What right. does he do? He goes, and looks for the sheep and he comes home, you know, after a couple hours. no. He doesn't stop looking until he's found it. And when he brings it back, there is great rejoicing. Like, okay, so that's one sheep out of 100. All right. Uh, What's next? Oh, yeah, that's right. There's a woman who loses a coin, one coin out of 10. And she goes and she finds it. And, you know, there's jubilance upon her finding it. And then what's next? All right, that's right. There's a father whose son goes away and he throws a big old party when the son comes back. So I said, now, notice something going on. One out of 100, and that's a sheep. One out of 10, and that's a coin. One half, and that's a son, right? And how much more worth does God place upon a son of his, a human being, than a coin, right? So Isaiah 53, for example, Christians have often seen in the suffering servant, the face of Jesus, and they identify Jesus with the suffering servant. It says, he shall see out of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. So I asked this individual, with what will he be satisfied, right? It's like um, if I went out and I paid for a 100 acres, And the person said, sorry, I'll I'll only give you 99. I know you paid for 100. I'm only going to give you 99. Would I be satisfied with that? I say, no, I paid for the 100, and I'm going to get the 100. So I asked him, what will Jesus, the good shepherd, be satisfied with? The whole caboodle. And so um, I find it very frustrating. You have certain Calvinists where they use language like, well, you know, uh, God passes over these people in their sins. He passes by them. Do you know what that sounds like? It sounds like the Levite on the road with the Good Samaritan, Samaritan. story, right? Yes. Where the Good Samaritan did not pass by the man. Correct. Right? He saw the man in his affliction and tended to him. So the idea that God is just simply going to pass by as a good euphemism sounds remarkably unlike the Good Samaritan.
1: Yeah. I mean, he turned that on 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 its head many times over. And what I loved about Tim Keller, God bless him, um, uh, when he wrote The Prodigal God, um, was the idea of prodigal... Um, what we always thought about was a prodigal, meaning a wayward kind of son, right? And we always thought about the younger son when in fact what came out of the book was, no, lavish is what prodigal gives. He's a, he lavished love and, and, and an abundance upon him. And we also didn't pay much attention to the, who the older brother was, who is more like that Levite priest, right? Who was the more of a Pharisaical one. But the, um, the understanding to go into the depth of that about how he would hold his robes and go running down the road which was it would have been an embarrassment, an absolute lowering of the standard. That's 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 kenosis right there, right? That is, that is condescendence. That's that's lowering himself to the level of servant, right? That that's amazing. It's powerful, right? It's, I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah, I
2: find it really interesting that the older brother too, that he knows that the his younger brother had squandered his inheritance on prostitutes and riotous living. How did he know that? Right. Presumably because <laughs> he was told. Right. And he didn't go and do anything about it. So self-righteous standing from a distance with a, with the finger pointed when their four fingers pointed back at him. Right. And, yeah. and and that's the worry that I think a lot of people have about joining themselves to the Christian community is the idea that there's an older brother waiting there for me. Right. Or like um, you said earlier about, man, you're telling me, all these people will be in heaven. Like there's an old story about, there's these, all these people with their golden tickets tickets to get into the pearly gates They they can't wait to get in, right? And then a rumor starts to spread, a quite unsettling one at that. And the rumor said that God decided to forgive the others too. And these people are livid. They shred their tickets. They stamp their feet. They gnash their teeth. And, of course, this is the last judgment, and they're damned. (laughs) Right. Um, I love that story because – it really makes you think that, do I love God or am I just jealous of what the other person has? Like I want what they have. I can't get to it. So I just say, you know what? Well, they're going to hell anyway. <laughs> right? well, so that's yeah. my
1: solace. That's the same story, though, with the day laborers, right? There's somebody that worked at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. And then there's people that just worked a little bit at the end. And they all got the same wage. And these people are grumbling about it, right? And God's like, hey, wasn't it fair? Didn't I, didn't I offer you a fair wage? Are you, you know, that's, I mean,
0: if you look for it, it's there. This is why it's- it's well, The it's kingdom becomes- is in both. That's the mystery is, yeah. is how is love present in both of those situations? Because one is unfair to the other. You know, this guy worked a lot more and this guy got a lot more per his way per his action. And so it's an unfair situation. What we think is traditional. It's like, Oh, it's gotta be fair. Love is not fair. It's <laughs> not, it's inclusive of both completely. Yeah, that's true. And that's the Liberty of it. No pun intended to Andrew. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually want to go back to that question. What did you learn at Liberty? Cause
2: that's I think, the bastion of conservatism. Sure. So I think, um, When I went to Liberty, I didn't learn about facts. I learned about how to think, right? And I think that's what's important.
1: Yeah, I love
2: that. There was one professor in particular who really stressed the idea of paradigm shifts. And he was a Calvinist, right? And at that point, I was no longer a Calvinist. I love that professor because even though we disagreed on many things, we had great admiration and deep respect for one another. And he taught me how to think. That's awesome. Did
0: you argue or did you just discuss? Like, were you at a friendship level that you were mentorship <laughs> level you could really kind of chew on stuff?
2: Oh, we, we were uh, friends. We, we sent like a, it was like a screw tape letter some nights between us with, else, <laughs> with, with questions we had. And uh, the really humbling thing was when he would come with questions to me, oh, right? no. my professor oh. would say, I'm like, oh, you know, this is very, very humbling when your professor comes to you now with questions. And I said, man, I, you know, professor, uh, I'm going to try to answer this to the best of my abilities, right? So at Liberty, you'd be surprised. There are several professors. Obviously, I can't say their names or they get in trouble. But there are several professors there who. I'm a very outgoing person. I'm a good student, right? And so they took a liking to me. We had discussions. They said, "You know what, Andrew? Like a lot of what you say, I I hope you're true." One of them was convinced, right? But now he's retired, so I can say that. Um, but they acknowledged. They said, "Andrew, I think it's some of my presuppositions that I have that are keeping me, you know, from holding this feet. And I say, "I understand, right? I understand." Um, Paul talks about how if you believe something to be sin and you do it, that is sin. So I said, don't just believe it because I tell you it's true. All right. I need you to come to that conviction on your own. So I think Liberty University, I call Christian Disneyland. Right. I I may not agree with a a lot of the political students here. For
0: those who don't know, what does it feel and smell like? Like what's it like to go there?
2: (laughs) Uh, Well, they actually just built a whole giant new cafeteria. So I was in a really rotten one. There's new one. It's like, Eating at a Disney resort, it is, is the it buildings. Really? Oh yeah, the buildings, millions of dollars they spend on that stuff. Campus, huge. The the Isn't recreational the facilities. It sounds like what you're saying is there is scholarship there. It's not just mm-hmm.
0: selling an idea that's completely narrowly conservative. Although, does that exist?
2: Mm-hmm. I think um, so. One of the ways at Princeton that they view liberty is they're not doing real biblical scholarship. They're doing apologetics, right? Of course. Often, What's the cost? difference? But but he, well, here's the problem is so is Princeton, right? In my experience, they're doing apologetics too, right? Apologetics is defending your worldview as I see it. And that's exactly what Princeton teaches their students to do. So I don't think it's a fair accusation to make. I mean, Gary Habermas for crying out loud, goes to Liberty, well known for his minimal facts argument. I, I'm not necessarily a proponent of his argument. In fact, I'm not. But I got to say, the guy has done an incredible amount of research. He has made scholars think at night, right? He has helped people come to the faith. Uh, And so I have deep respect for Gary Habermas. So there are a lot of really good professors. Oh, there's one professor, who uh, Mark Allen, had the apologetics uh, department there. He had an endorsement on his most recent book from Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury. Yes. So these are theologians in the full sense of the term, and they have my respect, even if I might disagree with some of their positions.
1: Have you listened to Rowan Williams on, on on a few things? He he's brilliant. I mean, um, you are you familiar with Unbelievable, the Unbelievable podcast? I was Just invited really- on there
2: to debate. Yeah,
1: well, you should be. Rouser Ra- Ra- was on there. He did a great job debating Paul Copan on was God a moral monster? It was a genocide. So mm.
2: they
1: were having a they were having a conversation about panpsychism and pure yeah, consciousness. Right? Is consciousness a dual dualistic thing like most Christians believe? mind-body distinction and it, it has to almost naturally be um god-given and because of a soul almost right because of an eternity um then there's of course the um the middle part which is a panpsychist panpsychism which says because we can't measure thoughts in people's heads and it can't actually be truly measured there has to be a philosophical construct to this conversation and the, uh, the third one is just like no there's no such thing it's just it's better, basic motorological functions, right? There's, there's nothing there, there. It's just pure physical, right? Well, I mean, you've got Rowan Williams in there throwing down Mobius strips in conversation and other kinds of, I mean, he's deep in the weeds with these people, right? And he's a theologian, right? Mm. And I just, I just, the way he knows things. And then even for him to describe things like being Christian, which is a book like 70 pages in discipleship and how that much brilliance can come down but one of the things I love about him is he also tends to um, be very cordial. So he was on a debate at the Sheldonian Theatre, which is Oxford, with you know Richard Dawkins. And one of the reasons why I ended up really believing in theistic evolution is because you know he's there talking to Dawkins and they talk about evolution and 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 he's on board. And Dawkins uses this idea of the um, the recurrent laryngeal nerve. So uh, we're going on a on a on a on a.
0: Yeah, you're time. going on a tangent, bro. <laughs> I know, but, but think
1: about this for a minute. So we have um we have a brain and we have a thorax, right? Or a larynx. It's our voice box. You would think in an intelligent design world that the larynx, the laryngeal nerve would go straight from the brain to the larynx, but it doesn't. It goes down here, up around the top of the chest cavity to the heart and back here. In a in a giraffe, it's about a 20-foot detour. Because they've got the head, and then the laryngeal nerve, it goes back up and around. And like, like the question is, isn't the burden of proof on on the creator in that regard? And Rowan Williams is right there, just totally agreeing with him. So that's another discussion. But that's why he's such a winsome guy. So
2: it was uh, Bart Ehrman recently. He he was on, I think it was Stephen Woodford of Rationality Rules, right? He was being interviewed. He made a comment about theologians, and he said that he said theologians are serious thinkers, right? And he, the two examples he gave were Rowan Williams and Stanley Wass both of who are giant names. Like, I, I think it was The Grace of the Body by Rome Williams. I read it. it was a beautiful essay. I started recommending to students, I'm like, you've got to read this essay. So the, I think it's – what is theology for a lot of people? I think that in pop culture, they think that – well, theology is just exegeting passages from the Bible. All right. Go ahead and read Thomas Aquinas. Come back to me and tell me. You think that's all theology is, right?
0: <laughs> What's theology for you, Andrew? Mm. Oh, a like what drives question. this? Because I, I sometimes I think I'm on a very esoteric path, being a universalist. Like I feel like I'm on the deep fringe. Why? Would you, and you're on that same journey. Why was that relevant for you? What was going on there?
2: Yeah, I, I think for me, I need to understand that at the end of the day what theology is. It's not simply exeging passages. Theology, right? is the study of God. So I don't understand it broader. God is a lot bigger than just the Bible, right? You can't just pin down a God down to a like pages, a piece of paper. And here's the thing. God didn't say all that you want to say in a book, so he said it in a life. I think that life is Jesus Christ, right? Uh, But And God speaks to us, I believe, in natural revelation. I think he speaks to us through dreams. I think he speaks to us through visions, right? That's what we're called to discern the spirits. I mean, you'll have some people, for example, who they call themselves cessationists, and they'll say, well, you know, I can't believe in the gift of prophecy because that's new revelation we've got to put in the Bible. For me, that's always been silly uh, because uh, don't they think, do they agree with the gospel of John, which says that. Jesus, right, did so many deeds, right, and other sayings that he uh, performed that all the books in the world cannot contain them. So there's more revelation right there that's not recorded in the scripture. Also, the gift of prophecy was existing in the time of the early church. We don't have every prophecy that was given, like, just in Paul's lifetime alone that's recorded in the New Testament. Bad argument, right? So I'm more with, like, Dale Allison. I I love, like, reading about religious experiences that people have, especially NDEs, examining them saying, you know, what can yeah, I learn yeah. about God from these experiences? Right? Yeah, it's, it's the Westling quadrilateral where it's it's reason, tradition, experience, and scripture—the whole thing I look at to study God. Love it. So well balanced. Yeah. What's next for you? Are
0: you? Are you probably just released your book. For t- tell us a little bit about the title of your book when it was published and what you're doing to support that.
2: Sure. So um, the title of the book is Once Loved, Always Loved, The Logic of Um Beautiful title. I, I love the title. Once Loved, Always Loved. And of course, this is knocking off how I grew up. It was once save, saved, saved, always saved. Or once shut, always shut. And so um, I think this <laughs> came from the song that I was taught this as a child. One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside, on which side are you? Terrifying to a child to have to sing this song in Sunday school. So, my book is the idea that um, every person that is loved by God is always loved by God. Now, you have Calvinists like J.I. Packer who will come back and they'll say, Yes, but I don't think, I think that God loves some persons and always and all persons in some ways, right? And he says that he, I think God does the best for those he loves and the best he can do is omnipotence. So, I'm kind of combining, right, J.I. Packer. Uh, with someone like Thomas Talbot saying, yeah, I think that God does the best that he can do for those he loves. I just think that those he loves is a little bit broader than J.I. Packer thinks, right?
1: Right. Yeah.
2: And and that's kind of the argument in some. God does the best that he can for those he loves and those he loves is everybody. and He loves all in all ways, right? So I go chapter by chapter examining important concepts, I think, point to this truth, right? So people have questions, well, what about, you know, free will? You know, well, what about um, determinism. I, I heard something about this view called limited atonement, right? Or what about this? What about that? Right? And so I, I examine all of this quite a comprehensive book. The uh, idea that I say is if God is like Jesus, then all will be saved. God is like Jesus, therefore all will be saved. Now, sometimes those who have a bone to pick uh, with universalists are often they're called annihilationists, right? Or they believe in conditional immortality. They're like, hey, did you forget about us now, I think that's, there are many reasons for why they are forgotten. It's because some people, they often say, well, annihilationism seems better than ECT. I actually think it depends on what variants of ECT you're confronting, because certainly it's better than some, right? The more literal the, with the fire and the brimstone and you, it's material fire, but it's not better than others that I've seen, right? Um, I have a little bit of an aversion to capital punishment. I've read a story once where there was a girl who, uh, a man murdered her father. And then they executed the murderer. And she was asked, what do you think about that? She said, well, my father's dead. Now he's dead. That's just two deaths. It didn't set anything right, right? If justice is to set things right, that failed to do so. So, uh, I mean, I'm thinking of, I'm imagining my sister, okay, Jacqueline. Let's say that, that uh, well, let's say that she's my hypothetical sister. So then this is my real sister, right? So Jacqueline, she was a Christian in her early childhood. But then she started growing up and having questions about this whole Christian thing. And and she's an honest pursuit of the truth. Unlike some other friends of mine who just take it for granted. And she's examining these questions. She's looking at the answers and she's just not finding it persuasive. Jacqueline volunteers at Habitat for Humanity. Jacqueline loves her fellow neighbor, pours into them. But you know what? She she just can't buy that Christian stuff, right? Well, Jacqueline is on, you know, she's on a uh, mission trip, right? Overseas helping people. And then she's kidnapped by Boko Haram, right? They rape and then they kill her. Um, And then... Where does, what happens to Jacqueline? You know, where does she go? So, so those friends who never ask serious questions, never really delved into their faith, right? They're good to go. Jacqueline, who loved her fellow neighbor, Jacqueline, who wanted to know more about God, she's toast. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's unacceptable. Yeah, I, I will not accept that.
1: That's so, so easy for people.
2: What comes down for, yeah. for people is they feel like, well, God doesn't owe it to Jacqueline to make sure that she has a good life because God doesn't owe anything to us. Can I say something about that real quick? All right. So first of all, this is gibberish. All right, because the idea is I have to ask people, what does it mean to be just? For many people, what it means is to fulfill your moral obligations. If you fulfill all your moral obligations, then you are just. Okay. If God has no obligations to fulfill, then how is he just? This what we're saying. Well, God is just uh, because um, he has no obligations to fulfill. Therefore, he never breaks any obligations. And this is why he's morally praiseworthy. Seriously? Or if you say, well, to be just means to fulfill our moral duties and our moral duties come through divine commands. So what? God issues divine commands to himself, right? It gets ludicrous. It so, is. Yeah. So so this is the illustration I use. Let's say that you are a loving father and your son say, right? I, I'm down here in North Carolina. We like to fish. And, and so your son say, you know, dad, I want to take the boat out on the pond. And uh, you say, sons, you cannot take my boat. But they take it anyway. But then a storm comes in, knocks over the boat and they're drowning in the pond, and they, they cry out for help. Do you sit there and say, I don't owe you anything, right? You disobeyed me and my holy, majestic self. Do you get your ass out there and try to the best of your abilities to save your sons? How could you possibly look at a father who does absolutely nothing and saying, what a perfect being. I can't, I can't conceive of a greater being than this one. It's a joke. I, I'm not necessarily convinced. There are some people who take the view that God had to create the world, But here's what I say. I don't like to take a position on that standpoint. I just say, well, once God has created the world, once God has created persons, he assumes the moral obligations that come with being creator of those persons. Just like when a parent, they don't have – people would say they might not have obligations to their children who don't exist. But once their child does exist, right, now they have assumed the obligations that come with parenthood. And so it's not a question to me of whether or not God shall love his creatures – is how he shall express that love to his creatures,
0: right? Yeah,
2: because we default to
0: the doubt and miss out on the actuality, which is God actually loves us. I think this is why I love getting rid of this concept, because once we're not bound to it, that God actually is first love and has always loved you. Salvation is coming to the reality of what's always been, that there's always been grace. Then you get to experience a whole new version of God, Mm -hmm. one that is so empowering to go, oh, my God, God is really good at loving me. And guess what? When I love other people, it actually creates a better life. Like Jesus was on to something with the practice of loving your neighbor, because once you start just loving your neighbor, the guy next door and next door, it transforms your neighborhood. Automatically, because people just need someone to remind them that they are loved.
2: There was a good, yeah, I, I love um, the Lord of the Rings, right? I thought it was a really great trilogy. Now, there, in the last book, Return of King, there's a scene which Samwise Gamgee, he asked Gandalf. he said, are all sad things coming untrue? What a great question. Okay. Let's examine this on the uh, three views we have before us. All right. So uh, there are these persons who God, you know, performs metaphysical capital punishment, or they perform some sort of metaphysical suicide. All right. Does that, does that come untrue? The fact that these persons are now gone, does that come untrue? Absolutely. Absolutely. That does not come true. What about eternal conscious torment? Does not come true. That, as Randall Rouser said, only comes true on Christian universalism, Right. Or I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis, who and J.R. Tolkien. Where J.R. Tolkien he wrote an essay called "On Fairy Stories" or "On Fairy Tales," and uh, he was trying to expand on the idea of the eucatastrophe, right—the the the, the unlooked-for um, happy surprise. And I said, you know what? I think that unlooked-for happy surprises is universalism is is the reconciliation of all things, right? And I think what's interesting here is that. Tolkien held the belief that the stories that we tell are ultimately meant to point towards God's stories, right? We see reflected in our stories, God's story. I said, well, that's interesting because as a child, I often heard stories about, and they shall all live happily ever after. I said, man, I, I wonder if that's keying us in to God's story. And then one final connection I made was C.S. Lewis. It was uh, in the silver chair. There's a character named Puddle Glum, who I actually didn't well, like well, as a kid. The right. Marsh Wiggle, yes. Uh, the Marsh Wiggle, yes, Puddle Glum. So there's a scene towards the end of The Silver Chair when the children are trying to be convinced by the Wicked Witch that Narnia is a figment of their imagination. Narnia does not exist, right? And what Puddleglum says is he says, you know, you say it doesn't exist, but this world you say that doesn't exist seems far more beautiful, far superior to the world that you say does exist. So I'm going to stick by the play world. Now, to be clear, some people take this as saying that Puddleglum is just going to stick his head in the sand. That's not what he's doing. This is an ontological argument. What he's saying is that beauty is interrelated with truth. The two go hand in hand so that what is beautiful is an indication of what is true. And if the world of Narnia seems more beautiful than the world that the witch is portraying to him, then it, the world the witch is portraying to him can't be the real world. It is Narnia. So what I tell the non-universalist is I am so sorry, but the world you're portraying to me is far more hideous, far less ugly than the world that I believe in. And if that's so, then that's a good indication that your world is just not the real one.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's what people are – we need the imagination. I think Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, they really took the imagination to a whole other level of wrestling with some of those ideas. I love what Tolkien did because Tolkien – is Tolkien – did he ever declare he was universalist or an inclusivist or anything like that? No, he was
1: Catholic. Um, and Lewis was, a, I think, a hopeful universalist. And there's a lot of people who I've talked to yeah. think that uh, C.S. Lewis might have become a Catholic, actually, too. Um, but, yeah, they were both, I think, I mean, in the last battle, there's a scene where Tash, you know, the followers of Tash, and they get confused. One guy thinks he's following some person and goes the other way, and he's reconciled. And so they, that's like a minor universalistic path. But I think that he didn't fully commit.
2: Like the Gollum, I think, would be an indication for me where, look at the creature Gollum. Over time, right, he becomes more and more and more depraved, it seems, right? And then ultimately, how does it end for him? He's consumed in the fires of Mount Doom. So is this an indication? And here's the funny thing with that is Tolkien, when he wrote that, he said that he was very disappointed as to how Gollum turned out, right? Because Tolkien saw himself as a historian of Middle-earth. Not so much like the author Sherlock Holmes, when he killed off Sherlock, he went to his wife and told her, "I have slaughtered Sherlock Holmes." There was no doubt he did it. For Tolkien, that was not the case with Gollum, right? And I remember reading *The Lord of the Rings*, and when that happened to Gollum, I was actually really disappointed. I said, "Are you kidding me? Right? Like, this is how the story ends for Gollum, right?" It's but not on my right. worldview, that's not how it ends for Gollum. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. no, because you watch him struggle,
1: right? He has parts of him, right, that goes back to Sméagol, in, in, he wrestles with himself as he's interacting, there's almost the grace imparted by Frodo, right? And even Sam, and you can see him wrestle and, rec- and, and that, that's why I think I agree with you. That's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it was a sad ending there, but you know um, you could also ask, why didn't they just take the Eagles in and drop the freaking ring
2: into. I have uh, some thoughts on about that one. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody has that theory. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, we can talk about that another uh, another, <laughs> uh, Well, we can talk about it now. We might as well, it's Friday, right? <laughs> Go ahead, dive into uh, that. I was the eagles didn't fly in just to hey, here you go, go drop it in the um in
2: pit of Mount Doom. So um, so it's funny. Then it would be lo- two minutes long, bro. <laughs> well, I'll try to make this quick. So why this um? There's several different ways of trying to try and support this theory. My favorite is when Gandalf, he's about to fall right, following the Balrog, and he says, "Fly, you fools!" And the question is, did he mean that literally, like, "Fly to Mordor, you fools"? So I recently read The Hobbit, and it talks about how the eagles didn't like to fly over certain areas because there were men there with long bows, right? And so I thought, you know, maybe the king doesn't want to lose any of his eagles, right? There are people who shoot them down. Also, Sauron, we can't forget that he has vultures. He has creatures that go in the air too, right? And so, I mean, they could take out the ring that way. I mean, the ring bearer that way. Where would the ring go? You know, How would they find it after that? Um he would see them coming from miles away too, right? We're talking about a giant eye and they're going in the air. And Sauron is several hundred feet up in the air. He could see them coming, right? Who knows what he could do? But the last thing, uh, point that I would make is that also too, we know that the ring, right? Affects people proportionally. So Gandalf, for example, was very afraid to take the ring and what it might do to him. Well, we know uh, from Tolkien's work and from later scholars that the eagles are very, very powerful beings. So I can't imagine what kind of impact or temptation the ring might have on the eagles, it might be a horrible idea, right? You're starting out on the trip and the Eagles say, oh my gosh, you know, wouldn't it be great to take over the whole dang world? So <laughs> I think that um, eventually it worked out in the end just the way. It- Notice how the Eagles, they didn't come in until the ring had finally vanished. Yes. They right? didn't come in until then.
1: Yeah. That's my theory is that it was almost like, okay, they, they recognized now that the evil was gone, that the tower had come down. Fly, you fools. And now they went there and rescue him. And they picked him up so <laughs> easily, too, in those claws. Right, It's a great story. Yeah. It is great.
0: I, I actually think that's probably the best trilogy of all time. Mm. Sold you know, over
2: 150 million copies. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's uh, – to me, that is the richest, most emblematic story of the human story of the king, you know, to mm. be restored. Like in honor. I think it's always about that. We're all Kings. We're all of glorious majesty. I love the rich history that evangelical brought to it is this idea of that. We are honorable. We have value. And I I think that's why I think my church in early days worked really well is because they really did build up. I think the early days of the Jesus culture, which is when my church exploded, we got that people were worth it. There was an explosion of love, probably because it was the seventies. you know?
1: well, The hippies like Chuck <laughs> Smith and the Jesus movement seemed to be a lot less about hell, more about community and singing and Kumbaya and and just celebrating the spirit. Right. They were doing that. They were doing, yeah. it was a
0: right. lot more conservative, but we were in the middle of Las Gatos, And it was an explosion of sort of that Jesus culture, big church, really do discipleship, love on people deeply, you know? And I think that's the thing about this whole concept that you've written about Andrew is when we change the image of God, we change our capacity to love because mm. we are loved. We recognize, oh, God's always loved us. And it's so much easier to love when you know you're loved. And I think that's the value of, of losing this historical narrative of that God is just wanting to put you in hell because He's He really doesn't even care, you know, for most people. He's like, God doesn't care about me. But the reality is God deeply cares. And You know, I said to myself on the 4th of July, some days I feel like someone needs to say to the evangelical church, you need to wake the fuck up. (laughs) Jesus was a lot more restorative than you will ever imagine. And you've got to wake up to that because we are the called to love, you know?
2: You just reminded me of something.
0: follow me and just go eat bread. It's go love.
2: Absolutely. And just reminded me, um, something I should have said on the topic of evangelism is when people ask, you know, well, if you don't if you don't preach this view, then it'll take away from evangelism. I think that's a joke, okay? Because for a punishment to be um, for a punishment to really work, it has to be convincing, right? If I told you, you know what, it, Johnny, if you masturbate, then Potbellied Pete will bring his sky bears uh, and take kidnap you and take you to the sky castle. That's not a realistic concept, so it's not going to really work for him as a deterrent, right? Um, so when you tell people, hey, you know, God's going to use literal fire and darkness and brimstone and torture you forever. It's just not realistic. People just brush it off. They say, and so it, it fails to work actually as an evangelistic tool. So I want to talk to people and tell them, actually, I think that your method of evangelism actually is harmful. It hampers the spread of the gospel. So for example, in um, San, I think it was St. Francis. No, it was St. Ignatius of Loyola. He tells a story of when he goes to the Japanese culture. And these people revere their ancestors. And now they're told that they're all in hell. And um, they go to him and they beg him. They say, please, please, is there any hope for them? Is there any chance for them? So he confers with his friends and tells them no. And there's tears in their eyes. And many come to reject Christianity because of that. Notice how the traditional view uh, in this case was a hamper to evangelism. It didn't help at all. right? So I can only imagine if Gregory of Nyssa had beaten Ignatius of Loyola there first. Yeah. Well, the Mormons have it figured out because they can baptize uh, the dead
1: on on the church's behalf and save them, so that's good. But you know, going back to Gregory of Nyssa, I mean, that what was crazy is that this was a totally acceptable paradigm in the early church, right? You got Saint Clement, Gregory, Origin. Um, sounds like Athanasius had it, and then even Augustine, according to um, I think David, calls them the merciful ones. So he coexisted. <laughs> be like, oh yeah, you, um four views on 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 for divine foreknowledge, right? I'm I'm you know I'm hanging out with these uh, you know Calvinists, and they're hanging out with open theists on the far end of the spectrum, and everybody kind of got along. And I think one of the things that cannot be um, over you know emphasized is that the church had by the time the powerful came in, the money started coming in, and the politics started coming in having that kind of free love, that early kind of group that would go to where the Romans were casting out, you know, children and and lepers. um, It just became a lot less popular. Right. And I think it had to get co-opted because it it didn't pay for St. Peter's Basilica, for instance, you know? So there's a lot of, and as people get more and more suspect, I mean, there's a lot of people that are looking at the government today and looking at what's even truth coming out of the media, right? There's a lot of, questions coming out of Maui about this seems like a really kind of weird situation out there. And I think it's, it's worth, you know, digging back in to say, listen, this is not what people, you know, believe back then. It's, it's been a little bit of a co-op situation, you know?
0: Well, I think that's, you know, that's what Bart Ehrman, that's why I really like the sort of year start was Bart Ehrman. Cause I think it wasn't mine. I was a little bit later. Um, but that, that switch of a conversation is what people are afraid of. Like they're Oh, there might be another possibility. Bart, Challenged a lot of people in my circles. Like, that's just heresy. That was the easiest turn. No, we didn't, term. Oh, no we, we didn't want to read Bart. No, we were going to avoid yeah, that. We were told like not a, to not. Yeah. I went to Biola and we were uh, told not to read Bart or Spong. I, I, I have, have a story about
2: Bart. that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: If you um, had that book, especially Spong, people hated Spong. Mm-hmm. They could tolerate Bart because Bart wasn't as big, you know, Sponge can be a little bit. He's interesting, Uh,
2: but we we could you couldn't be caught with that book. Mm -hmm. I'd say like um so first to Rich's point, I think um, winners decide how to frame the narrative right of past history. So is is it the American Civil War or is it the War of Northern Aggression? (laughs) Right, winners write history, and so like yesterday I was talking to somebody. He says you know Andrew, you know I understand your view. It's very attractive, blah blah blah, but um, it's just not orthodox. I said you know, timer, I got to ask you a question. What do you mean by orthodox? Who gets to define orthodoxy? So I said, if you mean orthodox as defined by the creeds, I would like to see in those creeds where it is unorthodox, right? He said, I said, now I have a feeling what you mean by unorthodox is that it hasn't been the dominant position throughout the duration of church history. He said, yes. I said, can I tell you what also hasn't been uh, the dominant position throughout church history? Um, Your view of baptism, paedo-baptism, regenerational baptism has been the dominant view throughout history. A amillennialism too. All right. And it, so this guy yeah, kicked up every box of something that is by his own standard unorthodox. I just find that rich. Um, uh, Jonathan, you said something about Bart Ehrman and it's, you know, so I always like to ask questions, right? Which is a dangerous thing in some circles because you're, you're not allowed to ask questions, right? Um, so Bart Ehrman, I was reading him a several years before any of my classmates, right? I came across that book and then so I just started Diving, I I think I read once in 13 of his books because he's a very good writer, he's able to commute scholarly uh, knowledge in a very easy manner for lay people. Um, I got into knowing him, very nice guy, much successful. He He is, he actually said it uh, like you probably heard before. On my view, he said that he thinks it would help out the Odyssey a lot, right? So he's very supportive, Mm -hmm. um, even if he doesn't ultimately, you know, agree with the Christian picture. But I remember when I started reading his books, people started talking about me behind my back, right. And I didn't know that at first, but then start, people started saying, you know, someone so said that you were reading Bart Ehrman. This, mm-hmm. do you know oh, what this is at Liberty? This yeah. at Liberty? Yeah, at Liberty. Yeah, I was I was shunned, blacklisted by some friends because oh, yeah. God forbid that I I lead them to, you know, walk away from certain views they had of Scripture, for example. Do you know what the irony is of this? Is a year later we all had to read Bart Ehrman. He was assigned reading. I had, I had the biggest laugh at that. <laughs> that's right. That's, uh, oh, that's awesome. Was, yeah. it, was it misquoting Jesus? What was the book
1: you had to read? Was it misquoting yeah, Jesus? Which or which one? It
2: was. Um, there were several we had to read. It was how how Jesus became God was one. His other one was about Jesus and memory. I can't remember the title for that one. And uh, misquoting Jesus was for a different class that I didn't take. But I had friends who took that class and had to read it too. So we got a heavy dose of Barterman. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Wow. So let me ask you a question. You were – at what point in your life did you say, I've got to make a mental ascent to universalism? Or Mm. was it – you just kind of always knew it. Where where in the spectrum were you? That's
2: a good question. Um, So I've seen certain universalists make what I think is kind of a pathetic argument. And they say, well, all people are really universalists because they couldn't just really believe something horrible like this. Because if they did, then they'd be just like – trying to evangelize everybody, I I just don't think that's realistic. I mean, because I know people who, like, they say they believe in the power of prayer, but they're not always praying, or in every situation where they could use prayer, they're not always praying, right? So human psychology is just difficult. And uh, I think that some people believe that this exists, but they want people to go there, right? So that's why they're not evangelizing, right? I mean, don't you know that God doesn't want any Muslims to go to heaven? Gosh, that would be terrible, wouldn't it? Right? So people like that, I'm like, no, they totally believe that such a place exists. But they just don't want people to go there. At least the people that they don't want to be in there. Um, so for me, I um, I came to later adopt C.S. Lewis's view because that's the one that was always repeated. To when us. did that happen? Right. That happened in high school. So I took. um
0: I you, so, so that's my question: Were you ascending yeah. from an empty place, kind of still open, or did you have a defined? I'm. I got to save myself from hell. What did you? What did you, co- um, you convert to into universalism?
2: What did I do? What now?
0: What did what'd you convert you from yeah. into sure.
2: universalism? So it was five-point Calvinism that okay. I came across yeah. from to universalism. But when I came across to universalism, I abandoned five-point Calvinism, of course, in the process. Not just limited atonement, but the whole thing crumbled with it. Um, I mean, but that sovereignty, doesn't have to... sovereignty,
1: though, had to stay, right? Because God is going to will us to come to his loving arms, right? Was in that oh. regard, you we were still on board.
2: Yeah, uh, it's, it's all in how you phrase it, like, yes, I believe with Calvinists that God gets what he wants in the end, right? I just disagree with you about what God wants. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and like I say in my book, my listen, if you want to be, like I told the Calvinist brother today, you want to be a Calvinist, brother, be a Calvinist for God. You want to be a Molinist, be a Molinist for God. You want to be an open theist, be an open theist for God. Just don't believe in ECT or annihilation or something, right? Just come to the dark side of the force, you know?
0: So, uh, Andrew, we're going to wrap up here, but uh, Rich, I'll let you ask a final question too. Mine is, um, what's the conversation at the scholarly level around this topic? Mm. It, it, was your book like part of a big conversation that's growing or is it just really tiny? Where is it at?
2: Yep. So th- this is really interesting because Zondervan, years ago, they had a four views book, right? And it had a literal view of hell, a metaphorical view of hell, an annihilationist view of hell, and the traditionalist view of hell. What's interesting is Zondervan later put out a new edition of a Four Views Book of Hell with new authors. You know where I'm going with this. Uh, one, Jerry Walsh was a purgatorial view. One with a traditional view. One was terminal punishment or annihilationist view. Uh, and one by Robin Perry was an evangelical universalist view. Uh, they called it evangelical universalism? Well, that's what he considers his position to be evangelical Got universalism. Got it. And that is really interesting that this was published in a Zondervan book, right? Oh yeah. And Preston Sprinkle, who he wrote, I believe the introduction, um uh, his introduction and conclusion, he spoke very highly of Robin Perry's essay. He said Robin Perry makes a very compelling case. Um I think we are seeing shifts in evangelical circles. I think it's due to just deconstruction in general. People are just starting right. to think, feel free to ask questions. They're, They're um, starting to ask questions about the institutional structures and really, you know, so if if I don't assent to this, I'm going to hell forever. And that makes sense because why? Um, So like I said, I have people from Wheaton, from Cedarville, and from Liberty contact me all the time with questions, especially at Liberty since I came here. There's alumni, professors, you name it. And they're open to universalism, right? They are very open to universalism. And um, I think it's harder when I engage with more liberal-minded folks. Uh, because for them, either they're very bardian, and at the end of the day, God has to be free. God has to be free to, to not let everybody get in, or is that there just might not be any afterlife at all? And I'm with Del Lawson. They if want the. So. Yeah, if you believe that God exists and that there's no afterlife for folks, wow. I mean, I don't want to believe in a God like that. You know, a, a God where the last thing that people at Auschwitz experience is those flames going into the oven, and that's it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Rich? So oh. I, think we, I think we are progressing. Um, I think one of the things I say is that I've had scholars from higher-end institutions who have contacted me, but they, they have to do it under the radar, right? They can't come out publicly. So people ask, why don't we have more books? Maybe because people don't want to lose their job and they have families to provide for. So I'm well aware that in sticking out my neck, um, I have lost a lot of job opportunities. I remember um, I had an apologetics job. It was a pretty secure job. And I quit it because there's no way I'm going to continue to tell parents to C.S. Lewis's view of hell. Just didn't make any sense to me. Sounds diabolical. So um, people have asked that to me. One of their biggest fears is I won't get a job. Right? People won't hire me. And I think that is a shame. And we ought to reconsider that. It's the biggest cost of of
0: deconstruction is you often lose a lot of your social life. Mm, Yeah. You know?
1: What's really sad is I don't even think Andrew would call himself a deconstructionist going through that kind of – I mean maybe I, – I can't put words in your mouth, but I, when I've I, – I didn't fully deconstruct in the, in the same – I mean you, you look back on your um, – Rich, think, you're you
0: know, so different. You're so different. You have deconstructed I, a lot. I,
1: okay. I, I don't think it was a, a trial or a – let's say a, right. I didn't have a mental yeah. breakdown, which a lot of right. people actually do. You didn't have a dark night of the soul. I yeah. didn't have a doctrine of the soul in my movement. I was always questioning, and, and I was never afraid to open, like you know, look at weird, interesting things, and and look at the you know the devil's advocate view. And maybe that's just because it's part of my nature. But um, I was going to ask, you know, maybe um, you know we, we're seeing, you know, Pete Ends his, you know, when Pete Ends came on the scene at BioLogos and started talking about evolutionary creationism and you know historical Adam and not having to be fully inerrant and. Ways of looking at the Bible and in terms of things like that. I think it started to open things up a little bit. I think he obviously had to leave Westminster, I think is what it, where he used to uh, uh, be a teacher. But I'm hoping that it's going to be better for you. And I hope that, um, you know, you have, I mean, you're doing God's work, I think. And so one of the things we wanted to, I wanted to finish on is how do we learn about what your schedule is going to look like? If you're going to do any talks, if you're going to be, um, I mean, one of the things Jonathan and I were talking about is how do we have an explorers conference where we get a bunch of these bright minds together and we have. You know, enough people, enough visibility to this that it just can't be um, shaken off as a, as a trivial, you know, superficial fabrication, you know, something coming up and whimsy, you know, you know, kind of very superficial stuff. And it's actually got some real teeth. You know what I mean? So how, how do we find out about more about what, what you've got going on in your calendar? And how do we actually start digging in and work together uh, on spreading the word?
2: Sure. And, and kind of piggybacking on something that you already said is that I don't think this is a conversation that can just be swept under the rug anymore.
1: Yeah. You know, Lee Struble for oh, a yeah. book,
2: uh, for example, he had a book on heaven where he had to acknowledge the universalist position. I think uh, David Bentley Hart and Rob Bell are two reasons why. Rob Bell's book exploded. Love wins. Who didn't know about that book, right? And David Bentley Hart's book, That All Should Be Saved, rock the academy, right? So we, I owe a lot to those two individuals and so do many universalists. Now, there is a conference in the works uh, that is being planned for Christian universalism. Um, it should happen hopefully sometime next year, if not next year, then early the next year after, right? So it's, it's still in latent form. And uh, I've been asked by the person hosting, I can't say who, to help them think of guest speakers and whatnot. So we hope to get some new faces out there to show people, hey, there are a lot of people in the apologetics community who are universalists. Yeah, there, there are people defending the existence of God. There are people defending the resurrection. Those people you look up to, guess what? They're universalists. Um, so I'm looking Whoever forward to that. Whoever your contact is, have them contact us. Will do. Um, we'll do.
0: Uh, we'd love to encourage that.
2: Oh, yes. Uh, in fact, I have a feeling that you guys know who it is. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so Good. as far as me, um, I have a bunch of interviews that are lined up with well-known folks in the Apologize community. So probably the biggest that people would know would be Premier Unbelievable, formerly hosted by Justin Brierley. But um This is crazy. Sean McDowell has asked to host it because I was in touch with Sean for some time, right? And uh, Sean was very interested in what I had to say. And so now – excuse the dog. That's
1: okay.
2: So Sean wants to host this dialogue between me and hopefully Joshua Butler-Ryan. That's huge, right? Um, So that should be – it was scheduled for later next week, but because of scheduling, we have to push it back. But people should be looking for that. I should be on Gospel Simplicity. Uh, there's another well-known Catholic apologist. I won't say his name in case things go down south, but he's reading through my book now, seeing this is a topic that he wants to look at because he's had on an annihilationist before. He's had on another traditionalist, so he needs a universalist. You're about a- Barron, are, my you, are you talking about Bishop Barron? It, it rhymes, with, uh, um, so, <laughs> so, rhymes with went born. So rides with went born. So hopefully that materializes. So a bunch of different interviews lined up, some with atheists, actually, atheist apologists. Because there are many atheists that, you know, if I was to become a Christian, I'd have to be your sort of Christian. I, I, I have one atheist, his name is Joe Schmidt, who told me that I was fighting the good fight. <laughs> awesome. And I, I really take that as a compliment. So yeah, a lot of interviews Fighting for love,
0: That is the banner. The banner is love. It's not universalism. It's love because that is the story of universalism. The guardrails right. aren't
1: up, man. The guardrails aren't up right. and you're yeah. not trying to beat people up. It's 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 right. an open it's an open tent. It's a big tent, you know? Yeah, yeah. it's great stuff. <laughs> exactly. That's
0: right.
2: Andrew, so if Go ahead. So if if people want to get in touch with me, best way to probably do that is Facebook Messenger if people want to. I try to stay off of social media. Because, hey, folks, I mean, that's how you get to read the books and get more and more smart, right? Yeah, but yeah,
0: if you so, share yeah. snippets of your stuff, I think you'll attract a very large audience. Because I think this – I think we're at the cusp of the trend upward, like a substantial trend upward, because the story is good news and people are going to be attracted to it. So, mm-hmm. Andrew, Amen. I really appreciate you coming on with us. This has been a fantastic episode as it as it seems to always be. We have so much fun on these. And, you, and I want to encourage you because – you like david made this conversation accessible and i continue doing that man because you are this message is important and i hope you stay at the center of it because you were a great communicator you've really been able to share a great concept here that i think a lot of people are going to be able to chew on so thank you uh rich any final words no absolutely enjoyed our conversation looking forward to more tolkien more Piper, more
1: other conversations and digging in and enjoying the ride and, 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 and rolling up the sleeves with you. Looking forward to it. Really appreciated it.
2: All Thank right. You. This was my, one of my favorite episodes. Thank you, guys.
0: Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you, everybody. Have a great weekend and we will see you next week. Much love.